Hearts are broken and the bad guys win. It's Phantom of the Paradise, today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to Cinema Oblivia, the podcast where we discuss unremembered, forgotten, strange, unusual, out-of-date, and out-of-fashion films. I'm your host, James Eldred, and who's joining me today? Emma Bontrock-Muller, also known as Emma of the Impact. Why don't you tell the people a bit about yourself, Emma? Uh, well, I'm a film enthusiast like anybody else who's listening. Uh, I, I joke that I'm more of a professional guest on podcasts and live uh, live shows than I am having my own, although I am working on my own, but it's too soon to talk about. Good, but, good idea. Uh, Don't talk about it until you're ready. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I do a lot of uh, photography uh based art on a lot of horror flicks. I'm a very big horror fan, but a fan of cinema in general, like, Aren't we? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Recently, I saw you doing something uh, with the movie, the nineteen eighties, uh, let's say classic, uh, Witchboard. <laughs> yes, um, you know, uh, it's one of those things where out of the blue, uh, and I take it as a big compliment, as I do with uh, you inviting me here today. Uh, Andrew Hawkins, uh, one of the producers of In Search of Darkness, which uh, if you don't know uh, know it, it's a documentary about uh, specifically 80s horror films. Yeah, and it's a very part good of, documentary. Yes. And part of uh, keeping the conversation going, he does a lot of uh, watch parties uh, with Andrew Dalton. I call them the Andrews. Nobody else does, but I do. Uh, <laughs> very nice guys. And they invited me to uh, do a watch party with Tawny Katane for the mo- who was in one of the stars in the movie uh, of Witchboard, which most folks would know her as the girl on the <laughs> hood of the car in the White Snake video. Uh, here I yes. go again on my own. Uh, yeah. And she was lovely. And then recently... Uh, a couple weeks ago, no, on my birthday, actually, February 14th, uh, Andrew, the Andrews had invited me again, and I did a watch party for Santa Sangre, which is one of my oh. favorite horror movies. Uh, and uh, Simon Boswell, the composer for that oh, cool. film, uh, was there for the whole time. So I, I just am um, a very lucky person. I guess it's just part of it is that when you're a person that your passion for film shines through, people notice, I guess. So uh, i just been very lucky to talk to very cool people about very cool movies. Yeah, I had coincidentally just watched Witchboard for the first time, probably since it came out, right around that time. And, you know, it's not a great movie. It has moments. It. She's good in it. Tony Katane is good with what they give her. Uh, it's just, it's such a weird movie. I do like it. You know, uh, it's, it's has some good 80s ass 80s-ness in it. And I can really get behind that. And she looks great in it. 
fashion. Oh, she always looks great. And, oh, and yeah. Penny, you know, he dropped out of film school to direct that film, and it was his first film before, you know, uh, his his opus of Night of the Demons. Oh, uh, the same I guy. Thought. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah, Die, Night of the he did Night of the Demons. That's his uh, most popular film, not his yeah, last totally. film. But uh, so it was a very first time thing for a lot of people in that crew. Yeah, you and you could but tell, it, but it, oh, it yeah. kind of makes it so. There's something adorable about films that maybe they're not the best film you've mm-hmm. ever seen, but there's uh, there's a charm. There's a charm to it. And uh, but I was had to admit I was excited when the Andrews invited me to do Santa Sangre because that is a very good film. Uh, yeah, but the yeah. the the hard part about being invited to talk about a film that's a very good film and that a lot of people have talked about uh, is that a lot of people have talked about it. So it's harder to come up with things that people haven't said or thought of before. Unlike Witchboard, which gets less attention, so there's yeah, th- a there's bit. a little bit more ease into bringing a lot more information and perspective to it. So I had a blast both times, and um, and 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 you know they teased me that they might invite me for uh, watch party of Night of the Demons. So maybe maybe not, but <laughs> a girl can dream, uh, right? Night of yeah, the Demons. That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time you say the Andrews, I think you're going to say the Andrews sisters, but I think no. that's just me. That's I'm bringing my own gay musical baggage to to uh, that statement. I don't think anybody listening to this is going to even know who they are. So, yeah, let's just move on from that. Uh, <laughs> but you you picked the movie today. Also, we're going to be talking about Brian De Palma's uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Woo! Why did you choose this movie? I gave you a big list of movies, and this you said this one jumped out at you. Why is that? Well, uh, there's a lot of movies for listeners to look forward to. I can tell you that because there's a lot of good movies that you want to talk about. But this movie immediately jumped out at me. uh, I've been waiting to talk about this film. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's, it's, it's so obscure and unusual. There's nothing else like it. I mean, most of the time folks will compare it to the Rocky Horror Picture Show which mm-hmm. there which there are similarities but the Rocky Horror Picture Show another great film as everyone knows yes. is just another film that's so hard to describe because it's so much its own thing and that's the, that's what they have in common the most mm-hmm. it's not so much that they're like each other it's that they're just so unique and i when i first saw this movie which uh, a very cool friend of mine had recommended when i was in my early 20s now i'm in, almost in my mid 30s. I'm 34. I think I was 21 when I first saw this film. It okay. was uh it was not the ideal way of watching a movie. It was in about six parts on YouTube because you couldn't find <laughs> it any you couldn't find it anywhere else. I couldn't rent it. I couldn't buy it online. It wasn't available. Um but the moment I saw it, I was obsessed with it. And whenever I recommend it to people, sometimes I'm a little precious about it. Like I might say, mm-hmm. "Well, you know, it's very unusual, so maybe the ending will feel a little bit fast or quick because I want to protect it because I think it's perfect. But, yeah, I don't <laughs> but maybe mean. not all viewers will think that. Um, and so, and it's, 
a lot of it is the production design. Uh, a lot of it is the performances. Uh, it's about. Uh, it's very much a film uh, about the music industry, which I'm not a part of. But it's a very much a creator versus producer story, which I don't have a very deep dark story like that, uh, like this movie. But there's just a connection that you make there. Yeah, it 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 is a unique film. There aren't many other movies like it. Basically. In case you haven't seen the movie, uh, if the title isn't a clue, it is a very loose, you know, it's heavily inspired by Phantom of the Opera. It's about a singer-songwriter who gets his life destroyed and his music stolen by a world-famous producer. In the reality of the film, this producer is like the biggest person in the world. And then through a series of unfortunate events the singer songwriter becomes horribly disfigured and sent to prison he escapes prison and decides to torment the uh the producer who ruined his life at his brand new theater the paradise mm-hmm. and within that it goes places like it's not really a remake of phantom of the opera it just takes some ideas there's some faust in there too there's some uh dorian gray thrown in it's kind of a nesting doll of bad bargains you know in film and it it is a very strange movie it is also exceptionally strange you know when you look at who directed it you know brian de palma and Brian De Palma says his inspiration, his original inspiration for this film was that he was in an elevator and he heard the Beatles' A Day in the Life as elevator music. And mm-hmm. it just it put this spark in him that any piece of masterpiece can be bastardized and turn into something, in, into basic drivel. And yeah. the way I, the way I, like if I had to, separate this film into three acts uh it would be the first act is uh faust and then it kind of bleeds a little bit from faust into phantom of the opera which in perspective for those that don't know uh, this is way before andrew lloyd weber's phantom of the opera this movie also came out before the rocky horror picture show but the rocky horror picture show on had been on stage for two years but if you remember when that movie came out the rocky horror picture show people were not ready for that and this one's even more out there i think in a lot of ways in in different ways but in a lot of ways so they definitely weren't ready for this film uh and uh, so the cast consists of a lot of people that Brian De Palma had used in his very early films, including yeah. the star William Finley. Um, yeah. Probably the newest person for De Palma was singer-songwriter Paul Williams. Yeah, we'll get to him in a minute because he's a whole other thing. Yeah, I do want to really briefly about De Palma. You know, most people know him for his 80s and 90s work that is very, let's just say, Hitchcock-inspired. You know, 70s and 80s stuff, you know, Carrie, uh, um, The Fury, Dress to Kill, Blowout. Scarface. Scarface. What, what was that? Oh, I was just saying Scarface in a very funny yeah, way. Yeah, Scarface. Uh, Body Doubles, which I just, Body Double, which I just saw last year, and that movie blew my mind. Um, it's good. It's a good one. I always liked, it's a lesser film, but I like Snake Eyes. You know, very... Mm-hmm. All most of those are very Hitchcockian, 
you know, to the point of almost parody at times. But before he was into that, he made comedies. His first big movies, Greetings, not Greetings, but uh, Hi Mom and and Greetings. Those are, those are kind of X-rated, not porn, but X-rated comedies with De Niro, Robert De Niro. And those are his first real breakthrough films. And so it's a big shift to this. He also made a movie... Uh, called Get to Know Your Rabbit <laughs> with Tom S- Smothers and John Astin and Orson Welles. I would love to see that. I I, I was hoping that you had, but apparently, I mean, I, it's not easy to find, unfortunately. No. no, you can get Hi Mom and Greetings in a box set, but you can't get that one. I would love to see it because I love John Astin, but it sounds pretty bad. But yeah, like he was known for comedies and then he made Sisters and that was kind of his breakthrough like more ser- quote unquote serious movie. That was his very first Hitchcock movie. It has long tracking shots, a lot of split screen. It's, a, it's about um I it's hard to even explain Sisters. It's ostensibly about conjoined twins and one of them's crazy, but it goes much deeper than that. I just watched that for the first time last week. That movie's great. Uh, and that has I highly Bill recommend Finley it. in it too. Yes, it does. Yes, yeah, <laughs> with a ridiculous accent. Right. Uh, Bill Finley, who plays the Phantom, yes, he's what I describe as sexy, ugly. Ah, sugly, my favorite. <laughs> yes, that's it's my favorite too. He's and, he, and especially in Phantom because he's a little bit more uh, human in the beginning as opposed to Sisters, where it's it's it. Um, and, you know, he's a little bit more scary throughout. And uh, so Sexy Ugly is like one of my favorite aesthetics. I mean, I have such a crush on him in this in, in Phantom of the Paradise. He's just. Yeah, he's in this. <laughs> he's in Sisters. He's in that Toby Hooper movie, Eaten Alive. Uh, and Funhouse. And, and the Funhouse. Yeah, sadly, he, he's the voice of Bobby and Dressed to Kill, but he's not credited for that. He passed away in 2012, unfortunately. Mm. Uh you know, he is the, I guess you would say he is the protagonist of this film, but I think the main focus of the film is Paul Williams. Paul Williams plays Swan. Swan is the evil Uber producer, Machiavellian producer. I would imagine very heavily inspired by Phil Spector. I think in an early draft, in an early draft of the film, he was called Spector, you know, to give you an idea of what they're going for there. And He's played by Paul Williams. And Paul Williams, you might not know the name, but you if you're like me and you worship the Muppets, you probably <laughs> recognize him. If He did a lot of work with the Muppets. I'll, I'll get to the other stuff in a second, but he wrote Rainbow Connection, you know, and he has a cameo in the movie. He's a piano player in the bar. He did an episode of The Muppet Show, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. But he also, his main, he, he was a singer. And he released many albums, but nothing really compared to his writing work. He wrote Old Fashioned Love Song for Three Dog Night. He wrote, uh, he wrote We've Only Just Begun by the and Carpenters. I'm not an anti-Carpenters person, but I'm not a fan of that track. And, uh, I am. <laughs> but yeah. Hey, you do you. I'm not friends. judging. We can not still judging. be friends. We can still be friends. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. I do like the Carpenters. They're not bad. They got some good stuff. And he... He wrote the lyrics to the Love Boat theme, which is a good credit to have in your resume. <laughs> and he, much later in life, he appeared on the Daft, the last, unfortunately, the last Daft Punk album, um, and he sang "Touch." That was 
you know, like ten almost ten years ago now, geez. But he he has a very interesting career. He also did like all the drugs. Like he just <laughs> like all of them. And he's just a goofy looking dude. Like he He's a small person. I actually know somebody. He's a friend of my grandmother's, but he's in his my grandmother's much older. He's in his sixties and he he's small, just like Paul Williams. It's so weird that they look it's like he, he's almost a twin and he's from Scotland. It's very odd. But no one's interested in that. But I'm I'm six and a half feet tall and so and I live in Tokyo. So everyone is small to me. <laughs> like that's just my how how I live my life these days. My boyfriend is pretty short. He's Japanese and pretty short too. I hit my head on everything here. It's a problem. I wish I was Paul Williams' height. But <laughs> <laughs> the the movie also stars um Jessica Harper as kind of the muse of the movie Phoenix. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of her. And this was her first uh big feature film. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It was before Suspiria. And C sings her own C that's her voice in this movie. Some other people in the movie are dubbed, but C is singing. She has a good voice. She was also in if you know who she is, you probably know her from Suspiria. That's definitely her most memorable role. She's in a comedy I love called My Favorite Year. Which have you ever heard of that movie? I actually haven't. Yeah, it's uh I don't know who directed it. It's it's uh stars the other guy from Perfect Strangers, not Bronson Pinchot, the other guy. Okay. And, not and Balky. Peter o- yeah, not Balky. <laughs> and it stars Peter O'Toole. Oh, Peter O'Toole, the great actor that is extremely hard to work with. Alejandro Yorgonovsky yeah. said an elephant's easier to direct than Peter O'Toole. Well, well, the movie's story. kind of about that. Peter O'Toole <laughs> basically plays a drunk, even drunker version of himself, and the whole movie's set like it's all an homage to your show of show, your show of shows and Milton Berle's era fifties TV. It's a great movie. And she doesn't have a lot to work with in that movie, but it is very good. She unfortunately doesn't act that much. She married the chairman of Sony Pictures. And I guess, you know, why bother? <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, she also plays Janet Weiss in the uh, in the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shock oh, Treatment, yeah. where she also sings, which is oh, yeah. which is complements this movie so well. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. I've never seen that movie. Oh, it's fun. I, I recommend it, is all I can say. Swan has an evil right-hand man named uh, Arnold Philman. He's played by an actor named George Hemily, I think his name is. He was, he's a very New York-ass, New York actor. He he reminds me a lot of Joe Spinell type of oh, person. Oh, yeah. like, Definitely, like just, a heavier version of Joe Spinell. And George Maloney and his character, uh, Philman, is named after uh, Mary Philman, who played Christine in the 1925 version of Phantom of the Opera. Yes, that's a deep pull. Good job. Yeah. and <laughs> I got a lot of deep pulls. It's, it's very annoying for people close to me. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. That's what I do. And yeah, he passed away also kind of young in 85. There's a, on the Wikipedia, he sa- it says he, he died from a stunt accident from a film he made in the 70s. Scorsese says that about him. I really couldn't find much more about it, but that's, that's sad. He was also in a film that's very hard to find called Hot Tomorrows, which is the other Oingo Boingo film. I know. I've wanted to find that movie. I'm a hu- I have an Oingo Boingo tattoo. I am a huge Oingo Boingo fan. Yeah, um, that, I, I watched, uh, what's the, uh, Forbidden, the Forbidden World? Is that, 
Yeah, I watched that for the first time last year. That's a crazy ass movie. In a uh, lot of ways, yeah. With, yeah, it's more of a, a Richard Elfman uh, as the director, and then Jenna, his wife, and uh, Danny just plays the uh, he. Well, I shouldn't say just he yeah. plays the devil, and he's very good yeah. at it. Yeah, it's 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 before Danny Elfman came to the forefront of Oingo Boingo. George Hemily also has a credit as foot fetish man in the Burt Reynolds Catherine Deneuve film Hustle, which is a great thing just to say. I like that. It's <laughs> funny. I did also did not know that Burt Reynolds made a drama with Catherine Deneuve. So <laughs> I could get my boyfriend to watch that because he freaking loves Catherine Deneuve. He has good taste. Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh but also like some smaller roles, not many other people. Of no, a guy. Um, one of the singers, Beef. That's the character's name. Is Beef. He's played by a man named Garrett Graham. He's in eight million movies. He's in Demon Seed. He's in Child's Play two. He's in Chopping Mall. So I like him. He's the first kill in Chopping Mall, I believe. And he's in. Uh, yes. He's best. Uh, one of my favorite roles of his is in a movie called Used Cars, where he's featured more prominently. He's one of those um, act, a comedic actors that is in a lot. But he's not yeah. appreciated as much as he should, and this is one of his best roles. He just he's he eats up the scenery, but in the best way. Yeah, it's a strange role, and I, I feel like the character. So throughout the course of the film, you see a di- lot of different musical acts, and he is like I think supposed to be the pers- like he's the glam act. That's and that was his- when glam was just starting up. I mean, Alice Cooper was one of the more prominent uh, kind of. Kind of, he wasn't super glam, but kind of that glam makeup look because everything because Kiss was just starting up at the time, mm-hmm. and David Bowie was just starting up at the time. So he really based that character a lot on well, they, well, the direction he got was um, Little Richard a lot, yeah. uh, which was more so I think he said them trying to be polite about saying be a little bit more flamboyant. Um, yeah, but yeah. there's so there's that about it in the 70s. But the character, um, but uh, Swan, who is the producer played by Paul Williams, the way that Paul Williams describes it is that De Palma basically wanted a Reader's Digest version of Phil Spector, which is am- <laughs> an amazing idea to me. And so it's an, uh, and uh, De Palma talks a lot about when you have a certain amount of absolute power, you try yeah. to create the world as you see it, like with Walt Disney and Disney World or Louis the Fourteenth and Versailles and all of that. And, you know, if the grass is supposed to be blue and it's green, you paint it blue and the paradise yeah. part of the title, the paradise. Uh, so the, the movie starts off, uh, not with our main character played by Bill Finney, uh, who eventually becomes the phantom, but yeah. by, uh, George, uh, uh, Maloney, uh, talking about, talking to this figure that we don't see. We just see his gloved hands in the balcony section, looking mm-hmm. down on uh, this band, uh, the Juicy Fruits. Uh, oh, yeah, the Juicy Fruits, yeah. A little bit later. Film is telling this story about uh, a girl that they made famous, and she wanted to just drop her contract, and the judge said, you can't drop, you can't have a lifetime contract. It's unethical. Uh, and so it's kind of an allusion to what will happen later. So it's them talking about the industry, 
Uh, and Swan's main goal from the beginning of the film is to create the ultimate um, theater or the yes. old, and for a live broadcasting and for people attending, and he's going to call it the paradise, which yeah. also mirrors a lot of the more mythical themes about the devil and such in this movie. So the paradise, uh, before we even meet our, our, our main protagonist, uh, we, 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 we know about the paradise. Yeah. And when the henchman is talking to uh, um, Swan, it's, He's talking directly to the camera. You don't even see Swan. It takes a while for you to see Swan. I think that's a good move because I think it's important to build him up as this super powerful, almost demonic presence. Because let's be real, Paul Williams is not an intimidating presence. He's a he's a he's a he's a He's a weird looking dude and he he's adorable, but weird, but adorable, adorable, weird, sexy, ugly, adorable, weird. They're both things. Uh, I say, I say so. He was originally was going to be cast as the phantom. And then Paul Williams himself said, I'm so little, I'm not intimidating. And he also, you know, he also had had a lot of good experiences working in the music uh, industry, so he didn't want people to think he had a bone to pick, because at that point, he didn't. Yeah, but at one point, he's wearing, like, this tan pantsuit and, like, a uh, silk, like, burgundy shirt, and he looks like my... I know exactly what you're talking about. He looks like my fifth-grade teacher. And his pants are worn up to higher than his belly button. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's not... You know, we've already, I was going to do this later, but we've been talking about the music industry. Uh, you know, I th- I think this movie is obviously a commentary on the music industry. I think it's important to talk about what was going on around this time period. So he got the idea for the movie in 69, right? I think around then. Yeah, it was originally and, Phantom of the Fillmore, the uh, San yeah. Francisco um, theater. Yes. And, you know, I think throughout the, first couple years of the 70s he was working on the script even before he made sisters and so you got to think about 1960 the late 60s is when psychedelic music got really big and the beatles of course you know and motown like the basic basically modern modern music kind of really took a hold then but by the late 60s it was getting all those things were getting watered down you know the. Do you know what the number one song of 1969 was? I don't. Sugar, sugar by the Archies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that should give you an idea. You know, and Hair was big. The music from Hair was big. You know, the commercialization of the hippie movement. Which then, uh, Jessica Harper was in the Broadway production of Hair. That was her first job. Yes, she was. Yeah. And then 1970 is when the Carpenters get big. It's when Simon and Garfunkel hit the peak. It's when Neil Diamond's getting big. <laughs> 71, 71, you get Three Dog Night. You get Carol King. You get Rod Stewart getting even more popular. You get the Osmonds becoming popular. And then 72, you get like Gilbert O'Sullivan. Gilbert O'Sullivan. Um, Looking Glass. Looking Glass had that song Brandy. Brandy, you're a fine girl. That song. Uh, but and then Floyd's, in- which uh, you think of Winslow's, uh, Winslow, Bill Finney's character, the Phantom, Winslow Leach. He, his idea of this Faustian cantata, uh, I think of, you know, a conceptual album, which Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon had yeah. come out by then. So there, yeah, was, and- there, was, some, there was some hope 
at that time. There wasn't a lot, yeah, but there was some. There was conceptual, you know, the Beatles started the whole idea of that with Sgt. Pepper, you know, and and the Pink, Pink Floyd definitely, Pink Floyd and progressive rock definitely helped popularize the idea of an album, a singular album as a, a piece of work, not a bunch of singles. But like in 1973, the number one song in America was Tie a Yellow Ribbon by Tony Orlando and Dawn. So oh, like so old fashioned. It's even well, in the, the lyrics in the song. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, like when people think about 70s music now, you know, they think about David Bowie. They think about Alice Cooper, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, all these ama- and all these amazing acts and and funk and Kiss and like George Clinton and all this great, especially like the before punk stuff. And that stuff's great. And it was popular, but it was not mainstream. Before this movie came out, there was only one top 40 billboard hit that you could call a glam song. And it wasn't by David Bowie. It was by Sweet. It was (laughs) Little Willie. Little (laughs) Willie was a hit. And I love Sweet, but that is some bubblegum ass shit. It It certainly is. And it's interesting that one of my favorite parts of this movie is this band played by three guys. So Archie Hahn and Peter Ebling, who is credited as Harold Oblong at the time. It was a stage yeah. name at the time. He was Great. young. It's he a good stage name. Cool. And Jeffrey Commodore. They were they play the band that starts the film with a bang called the Juicy Fruits. That yeah. originally uh, De Palma wanted to get the band the Shananas to play that. And basically no, it's, it's- the juicy it's just fruit. Just shanana. It's not. It's just shanana. Oh, whatever. I'm just. I'm just saying. Uh, no, I'm. I'm just kidding with you. I, I okay. can be tough, but I. I. I mean it with love. Shanana, okay. and uh, it's basically the, that. The, the juicy fruits in the movie are supposed to be the epitome of just a hollow uh, 1950s nostalgia. Not that I mean which. Uh, Paul Williams says that he's a fan of. I'm a fan of it, but it has its place. But uh, in the movie, it's not supposed to be. They're not supposed to be these great artists. They're just, they just produce things they know are going to be a hit. And then, so these three guys also play a band that's later on in the film called the Beach Bums, which yes. I guess people can guess who they're supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, for each new iteration of the band of these three guys and on set, they played a lot of practical jokes. They were kind of the funny guys on set. Mm. Um, each different member sings the, the lead. Uh, and the last iteration, of course, is my favorite. They play a ba- They are a band called the undead, but to the viewer, unless you're a super nerd, like you and I, you don't know that those are the same people, the same band playing a different yeah. band. And it also makes a statement as to how a lot of these artists were very interchangeable and how that, you know, totally. even though you paint it differently and that's a lot big p- message of this movie, you can paint it differently. Like the undead, they have this black and white makeup that people think of kiss, even though it was inspired by uh, the cabin of Dr. Caligari, uh, Connor yeah. beats makeup. Uh, so they have the makeup and the, the they're all in black. But in the beginning, they look like 1950s greasers, like something straight out of Greece. But mm. they're the same band. You don't know yeah. it unless you look it up. But it's a bit. But it's but that itself is a big commentary. A big commentary the whole film is trying to make. The 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 opening scene with with Juicy Fruits 
and they're just Shanana. Like if you know anything about Shanana, that is what Shanana didn't do original songs, but that's what they look like. That's what they did. And I Shanana played Woodstock. Which, <laughs> did they? I didn't know that. They so Shanana was a weird. Well, is they are technically still alive? Not a lot. It's one of those bands that's had like eight million people in it, mm-hmm. and they're a review. They don't do original music. They just cover fifty stuff and six early like pre Beatles sixty stuff, and a lot of musicians back then loved them. Like Jimi Hendrix loved Shanana. Uh, um, a friend of mine on Twitter, Doctor Sparkle, he was telling me a story about how. Shanana opened for Jethro Tall. What? That's and crazy. The person who made the poster for it emphasized Shanana. So a bunch of fucking Shanana fans <laughs> showed up. And when Jethro Tall came on the stage, they got booed off the damn stage. That's I have, crazy. I have never understood Shanana. And I think Shanana are almost like a meme for boomers. <laughs> like they, they I have heard boomers make fun of them. Like my mom makes fun of Shanana. So they're kind of a joke. And to be honest, starting the movie with a Shanana, I don't care if it's a parody, it turns me off. It turned me off the first time. Oh no, I liked I just, it because I I I'm a sucker for even really hollow nostalgia for certain nostalgia, not everything. And yeah. uh so but because the song is a very 1950s sounding song but there's a darkness to it because this this, so the film starts off immediately with the juicy fruits which is basically shanana and they look like 1950s greasers but it's a song about a guy who grows up in the ghetto not too not unusual for 1950s uh Mm. in the ghetto um (laughs) but he basically his sister it becomes ill and they sing, they're singing about this. And the only way he knows he can get the money for his sister's operation is to become an overnight star. And the way he knows to do that is to kill himself. And there's, <laughs> and he, there's even a, and while the, the singer, the lead singer, and this is, um, is Han, he's twisting the microphone around his wrist and then using the microphone like a syringe. And there's a very heavy darkness to it. And I was immediately drawn in to this like very, you know, uh, it's this hollow 1950s nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia, but there's this darkness to it. And there's even a fight that one of the band members gets in with a member of the audience. And if there's just a there's a high strangeness to it, even if you don't you know process it all. Um, yeah, it it is kind of like it is like Shanana on acid. It, it is it is um like um even morbid even more morbid version of a song like Last Kiss or Dead Man's Curve. Like because the teenage death song was a whole thing, you know. You know, he said he loved me and now he's dead. Oh, you know, that was a thing. And this takes it to an even more macabre, strange suicide idolation level. So it's like he killed himself. So he's a hero kind of like thing because he's because, you know, he killed himself so his sister could live. All all America's choked up inside, man, is what they say. (laughs) I think the song does do a good thing of point like so the the opening narration by Rod Serling points out that Swan is the biggest thing in the world and by starting this movie 
by saying that and then showing the act that made him the biggest thing in the world and how it has very little to do with what's actually big in the real world at that time, that does do a very good job of letting the viewer know, like, this is not your reality. We're someplace else. We're in La La Land. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's a great idea, you know, and it is a it is a good opener to the film. Hey, sister, Mary Louise, needed an operation. To get the money, he would have to become an overnight sensation. Eddie believed the American people had wonderful, love-giving hearts. His well-publicized end, he considered would send his memorial album to the top of the charts. And it did. We should talk a little bit about the production of the film. Uh, a lot of the information about this movie, if you want to know a lot about this movie, on you can do it pretty easy on the internet. Because there's this website. Have you been to the Swan Archives? I have. Uh, you sent me a link, but I had been there before. Yeah. And I also like, have the Scream Factory. Um, I, ha- I have the, the Scream Factory Blu-ray. But also, um, you know, I'm one of those super nerds that even if, uh, if there's a panel from a convention of any sort, even if it's filmed on like a really old, like not even a smartphone and it, the sound is bad, I'll watch it if it's about something I love. <laughs> and there's a lot of that um, from, so this film bombed when it came out. It was yeah, a we'll total disaster, sure, yeah. except for in Winnipeg, Canada. Just that one place, and it was very successful. And it was also a little successful in France, which leads to a story about Daft Punk later. But in when it, so in two thousand and five, uh, two thousand six and seven, they had Phantom Palooza, which was a convention yeah. just for Phantom of the Paradise. So I've seen a lot of panels from that to get a lot of, which is on YouTube still, most of it, um, to get a lot of background info if you're like me who gets really thirsty for every single detail about a film. It's like, for me, film is like a historical place. Like you can go to the Arch of Triumph in Paris and it's a beautiful monument and you can admire it, but it's more if you know about the history of how it was built, why it was there, or if you can even think to yourself, wow, you know, Victor Hugo's funeral procession went through here. It means more. So film is like that for me and I assume you as well. Um, oh, yeah. Your wonderful yeah. podcast. It just like adds to it. I mean, some people like not to see how their food is made. But for me, I like to I like the extra detail. I like the artist's <laughs> struggle or the artist's success. It's all. Yeah. Well, this this food was made in a kind of a unique way. Like like you said, he got the idea in 69. He started writing it in 1970. He made it after he made Sisters. They he the producer on the film was a guy named Edward R. Pressman who's produced a ton of movies. He produced Badlands by Tarek Malik. He produced The Hand, both Conan films. <laughs> he produced the He-Man movie. Uh, talk Radio, The Crow, Wall oh, Street. The Crow. Uh, I, that might be tempted to choose, but Phantom was he on He produced the, the Crow and Street Fighter in the same year. You know, so like all kinds of weird shit. But like they sold this movie to a production company the, the that, that producer and them didn't gel. They didn't 
see eye to eye on the movie. So they had to buy it back. They bought it back from that producer. They independently financed it. They finished the movie. And for about $1.5 million, somewhere between $1 and $2 million, And then the movie was done, and they sold it to Fox. So that was more common back in the day. That doesn't happen now unless you're an independent filmmaker trying to make your first movie. You know, and so that's that's a, a, a way to make a movie. You get some money up front when you're done. The problem was that once they finished the movie, they got hit with lawsuits about the movie. A lot of them. And I think you I think you're gonna mention the most the the biggest you know, one. Two being, big ones. Yeah, they're the uh, Peter Grant. That's his name, right? The manager yes, for Peter Led- Grant. Yeah. He was the manager for Led Zeppelin and a few other bands. And he so in the movie, Swan starts a company called Swan Song. Now, if you know anything about Led Zeppelin, that's their company. And they started after production of Phantom of the Paradise, but, you know, Peter Grant's a very strong personality. Peter Grant is a very strong, was a very strong person. He was 6'2". He was a bouncer, a stuntman, a wrestler, and a, and a manager. He was, he was a massive motherfucker. <laughs> and he had a lot of clout behind him, especially in, in the UK and in the music scene. And he was not a man you wanted to cross. So, and... I did not. I knew that story when I was also reading more into this. So he didn't just produce Led Zeppelin. Are you talking about Stone the Crow? Yeah, Stone the Crows. So there's a band called Stone the Crows. They're pretty good. I recommend if you like blues rock, I recommend them. Their guitarist died on stage from being electrocuted. That is a plot point of this film, and the film was written before that happened. But production started almost right after it happened. So I would imagine that was a sticking point for Peter Grant. I That probably pissed him off. In retrospect, so, a lot of people say it was the inspiration, but I mean, it's hard to say how much is, because it was so close in time yeah, that it's hard yeah, to say it, how much is somebody's memory and how much, it, but it was either way. It doesn't matter. I mean, because uh, De Palma and everyone was saying they probably could have won the legal battles with Peter Grant, yeah. but it wasn't worth the time and the money. No. So, yeah. And, like, if if Peter Grant did feel that the movie was referencing that event, I would understand why he was angry. If you research that story, it's it's tragic. It's so sad. And the way that guy died is disturbing as hell. And so to see a comedic version of it in a movie would piss me off, too. So I get that. It is. But but, elect- to be fair, he is electrocuted on stage. Uh, which is, and he was only 27, this singer yeah. um, that, yeah. in real life that died. Uh, Les Harvey, I believe his name was. Yeah, he was a guitar player. Guitar player, yeah. And it, it, it was, uh, there was a live wire, and he touched the microphone the same time he touched his guitar, which had steel strings. Uh, yeah. But the way someone is electrocuted on stage in this film, we don't want to give away, because it's an absurd, Totally different. Totally different. It's totally yeah. differently. It's done in a different way, but it's still. Uh, someone being electrocuted and dying on stage. Yeah, I could understand why that would make him piss him off. So they had to remove as many swan song references as they could. And some so in post. In post, the movie's done. Like the movie is done, and I think probably edited to completion. It is done, done, done. The sets are gone. They can't go back, they can't do a reshoot. So sometimes 
like the on the Swan archives, they actually have the original footage. You can see it, and how they took out all the Swan song references. Sometimes it was as simple as changing a like, cutting into a scene like five seconds later just to remove the sign. Other times they had to blur stuff out or cut back and forth in a kind of a natural, but not if you don't know it's a cut, you wouldn't notice. But the worst ones, sometimes they just have to composite another logo over it. I think the worst one is at the Dallas airport they have there. They're doing the press conference for the new, for Beef, who's a new artist that they're announcing. And that's the worst one. That's the one that stands out to me the most. But there's so many, and a lot of people like to, you know, make lists and point it out. There's there's still so many Swan Song logos in that movie. Because, you know, Peter Graham probably didn't bother to watch it, which I don't blame him. yeah, and well, some of them, they, some of them, they can't remove. Like one of them's on a towel that Beef is wearing. You can't, you can't or remove flag, that. Flag, you know the flag, and but yeah, it's it's a composite effect. And if you know anything about composite effects, that that's kind of just when they put something over something, and you can do that if you have the time to do it. It can look pretty good even back then, as long as the camera doesn't move. And <laughs> on a few of them, when the camera moves, it look oh ooh. It's rough, so you see this like it, the, the 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 logo they put over it is Death Records. That's Swan's label, and on that press conference scene, the camera moves at one point, and you're like, "Oh no, no, no!" <laughs> I it it completely. I would imagine, and I would imagine, projected on film that looked like just like. Someone just took a giant stamp and just put a stamp in the middle of the screen. It looks horrible. I feel so bad for them. I wish now they could release it as intended because I think they would win that lawsuit. And But there's no money in doing that. There's no money in going in and editing those scenes back in and all and that. It's, no, it's it. kind of fun to look at uh, and look for the real Swan Song logos. I mean, it's kind yeah. of – it's part of the experience now. Um, like where's Waldo? Yes. <laughs> Trapped inside your world of worry You miss so much when you always hurry Oh, slow down, baby You'll only get hurt if you fall Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody That you weren't working just to survive But you're working so hard that you don't even know you're alive Working so hard This this film and this this film is a lot about how the music industry or even the film industry uh, corrupts and the two characters that are corrupted are in very different ways. Which uh, Winslow, uh, who becomes the Phantom, is disfigured physically, starting with uh, when he goes to Sing Sing, they take they out all of all of out. his teeth. Yeah. Um, and he has a grill before any rapper or Marilyn Manson or any of them had a grill. Phantom of the Paradise had a grill. Okay. Yeah. Metal teeth. Yeah. Metal teeth. Um, and that was based on some novel Brian De Palma mentioned. And I, I feel bad that I don't remember it, but the basically that, yeah. you know, breaking down somebody physically and that we, we won't go into how he gets deformed physically later, but he gets very deformed later as well. Um, yeah. 
And so, so he's basically losing everything through this. And he eventually signs a contract with Swan uh, and, because he has nothing left to lose. He wants his – Swan promises that his music will be sung by Phoenix, Jessica Harper's character. And he lies to him. Uh, and the, he chooses the, this other character who is this glam rock character played by Garrett Graham, who is one of the best parts of this movie of many good parts. He's hilarious and he's supposed to be. Uh, so he's this glam rocker called Beef. He was originally called Captain Beef and then they changed it up to just Beef. And uh, it's 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 he's a very interesting character. He's one of my favorite characters, and has one of the best songs. And even though this is technically a musical, it's not a musical in a sense where like these these big musical numbers um, that kind of flow throughout the plot. It's just that there are songs that included that are included within the plot, but because you know it's there, there's auditions and there's. There's these on-stage live perform live in the movie performances uh, that become part of the movie, so it still feels very much like a musical, but it is very much on its own. It's a musical in the same way that Purple Rain's a musical, yes, uh, it, or cabaret. None of the none of the music, all the music is diegetic. It takes place in the world of the film, uh, because even 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 in indie cinema in the nineteen in the 1970s i think making a musical was commercial suicide so you would do it like this is a way of making a musical without really making a musical it's kind of a musical you side loading the musical so yeah it, it's a good way to get the music in in a roundabout way i i the part where you know so now the phantom he's living in paradise and he's living in this room that is just a massive sequencer synthesizer and it, that's a real synthesizer that's the only that is, they, they film mostly in dallas and then when they started running out of money they filmed everything else in new york but this was the first parts that they filmed which is in la and it's the record plant uh which originally was a place in new york and then which closed down eventually uh and i think in 1987 and then, uh, but it, before that, they already had a branch, um, the Studio B and C, the record plant. And basically anybody who's anybody, you know, recorded at the record plant. And this particular synthesizer, which if you look up pictures of Phantom of the Paradise, you're going to see it and see the Phantom in the midst mm -hmm. of this giant, you know, kind of curved synthesizer named Tonto, yep. <laughs> which was invented by Malcolm Cecil was originally a, a bassist and then he turned into a studio tag, blah, 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 yeah. being a nerd. Um, and it's, 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 and then with the cinematography to this, it's just a beautiful scene. Uh, anytime and, yeah. that they're in that air, in the L this area that was shot in LA, which you wouldn't be able to tell. It's so seamless with the way they, every other scene is uh, indoors in the majestic in Dallas. Tonto is the original new timbral orchestra. That's what Tonto means. I am such a music nerd that I knew Tonto before I knew this film. I didn't. Uh, I knew it through When the I movie. was watching this film, I'm like, hey, that's Tonto. You're so uh, cool. <laughs> well, Tonto, it, there was a band that was Tonto's exploding headband, and Tonto's on the cover of it. And I love Stevie Wonder. And if you've, if you've heard a good Stevie Wonder album in the 70s, you've heard Tonto. Tonto was on um, Inner Visions and fulfilling this first finale. So 
and I think Talking Book and a couple Isley Brothers albums. It's on a few different records. It was a big deal when it came out because it was a polyphonic synthesizer. And you hear, you hear I, I'm a big synth nerd, and you hear a lot of articles about the quote-unquote first polyphonic synthesizer. There were a few that were developed uh, separately around the same time. This is def- this is one of the first ones. It's because early synthesizers, like if you ever listen to like Wendy Carlos, that's not polyphonic. It's a monophonic synthesizer. So on a Wendy Carlos album, like the Switz on Bach, when you're hearing more than one note played at the same time, that's all tape. She had to go through and overdub and overdub and overdub and overdub and overdub, and it's maddening. So to use a synthesizer more or less like a computer, like like a, like a keyboard, like a piano, was a big deal. So that was a very important piece of synthesizer geek history. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a jerk, and I'm gonna steal this bit of info that you probably I I'm like I I would be surprised if you didn't know because it's <laughs> it's so, such a big part of this film. There's uh this film is a big film for cinephiles. And yeah. there's a lot of people that like uh, Edgar Wright is a huge fan of this film. He's uh, directed. He's not directed. I, I mean, he's hosted panels for this film, and he's he's to me he's a very musical director. And then Daft Punk, uh, the two main the two guys of Daft Punk, speaking synthesizers, Rest in peace, Daft Punk. Yeah, they they met during a filming when one was 12 was one was 13 you know in France because I was one of the other places that this film did moderately well uh, they didn't mean they were born around the time this film came out so I don't know exactly why this film was being screened again but they met during a screening of Phantom of the Paradise and they both watched it 20 times together and <laughs> the uh, look of the Phantom is a huge inspiration for the way that Daft Punk looked and director yeah. Guillermo del Toro is a huge fan of this film. He said it's one of the 10 films that inspired him as a filmmaker at all. And I don't know if this is this part is contemporary. It's fairly recent. He said he only owned one movie on actual film, 35 millimeter film, and it's this movie. And he is right now, I mean, he's been in the workings doing Pan's Labyrinth as a Broadway musical forever. But uh, because of his being a big fan of this film, he he hired Paul Williams to do the music for the Pan's Labyrinth musical, which <laughs> someday hopefully will will actually happen. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah. The Daft, I knew that Daft Punk story. I think yeah, this and there is a uh, French disco band called Space. Oh, and I, I don't think, know them. Are they good? Yeah, the space space. The genre of space disco is fun. I like it. Uh, and I think space would come out with like astronaut helmets on. And I, yeah, I think the two things combined the, the, the sci-fi-ness of space and the theatrics of Phantom were definitely used in Daft Punk's creation of their image without, without question. I, you know, musically, I don't see much connection between Phantom of Paradise and Daft Punk. But no, no, from a no, stylistic standpoint, yeah, that's where space comes in. Space is much more Daft Punk's jam, I think. I think those two things together. Uh, but yeah, like you said, the movie did, the movie did pretty good in France and Winnipeg. And you said it bombed. It's really hard to get like clear box office numbers on it. I I can't imagine it lost money because it didn't cost that much to make. 
Uh, everyone was because everyone that was a part of this film, they loved it so much. They were also heartbroken when it didn't do well. Uh, Bill Finney, who plays Finley, I should I always try and get the L out of his name. Um, that poor, sexy, ugly dude. I love him. Um, <laughs> he uh, he was with his longtime girlfriend for a long time and he expected the film to do maybe not a huge hit but to do a lot better than it did and that's when he would be able to say to his girlfriend's parents like you know i'm gonna do okay in life and i can take care of your daughter and he was gonna propose and then the film didn't do well but he proposed anyway and he was married (laughs) to her uh his wife till the end of uh end of his life and he uh, interestingly enough, during one of the Phantom Paloozas, I actually don't know if it was a Phantom Palooza or a different panel for Phantom of the Paradise, and it was hosted by Edgar Wright, and uh, it was after uh, Bill's passing, and his wife was there, and she had one of he w- he went to the Rhode Island uh, School of Design, which you know is very highbrow uh, art school to go to, and he had this. Interesting. She had a print that was a giveaway. If you knew that it was a uh, tiddlywinks, which the prisoners are producing uh, before he yeah. escapes from prison in the, which is actually the a Pressman toy factory. The producers uh, family owned that toy factory and they used it for filming. Um, That's convenient. Yeah, it, it is convenient. It's nice. Um but uh, he did this. Uh, the, she she gave away this print to uh, Bill Finney, Finley, uh, poor guy, Bill Finley original called The Divine Invasion, which was inspired by uh, a Philip K. Dick novel. So he was a very artistic dude. I mean, and, and everybody in this is very uh, artistic, which adds to the film. I mean, uh, um. Jessica says that she, when it working with De Palma, that she considers him uh, basically one of the best uh, actors, directors she has worked with, where he tells you what he wants exactly, but he gives you a lot of room to do your own thing. And this was her first feature film, and she felt like Phoenix, in a way, was an extension of herself, you know, finding herself as an actress in a way. And, uh, but other people had different experiences. They don't say it directly, uh, working with De Palma on this movie, because uh, he was kind of like a little bit otherly. Um, Garrett Graham, who plays Beef, the glam rocker, and then the three guys that play the Juicy Fruits, the Beach Bums, and the Undead, they called him uh, Mr. DePazio, and they don't explain why, whether it's just one of those inside jokes that it's hard to understand it if you weren't there, uh, or it's maybe not something very nice. But um, yeah. but uh, it, it sounds like De Palma definitely had his direct vision for this movie, but also oh, yeah. had the openness... Uh, to let everybody else's talents fly uh, really well, and um, you know what's or for to, to quote Swan, I would just say, "Tasty Winslow, tasty." <laughs> I I would imagine someone like Jessica Harper, the way she talks about De Palma, she obviously he, she felt he was probably very patient and gave her very solid direction. And I would imagine for someone like her who's starring in the film, that's great. I can also imagine De Palma makes very intricate 
directorial choices. You know, there's a split screen extended take in this film, which is crazy. And one of the most complex shots I've seen in a film. If you're, that's really hard. That's going to take forever. And if you don't care about it, and if you're not like, is it the split emotionally screen? Invested, uh, is it the split screen, or is it when he becomes the phantom in a way? When he that long no, I mean shot. the split screen shot with the bomb. Mm-hmm. That that is a long take, and that's not easy to do. That's it's one of those screen. Hitchcock. Is it homage or is it stealing? And I like to think, you know, it's in the zeitgeist. It's homage. I would say it is a homage to Touch of Fear. And Frenzy. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do. And I imagine that might get on some people's nerves if you're not the star of the film like the the band. So I could see how his probably his very meticulous attention to shots and miss and scene and stuff like that might get on someone's nerves but if he's i i also have heard from more than one person that he's very good with actors so i i'm gonna err on the side of he's probably a pretty good person to work with i would i would think so too and I, he also said that that uh that specific scene which we'll just say it's the first instance of people realizing something's amiss maybe there's a phantom kind of incident and it's yes. also uh, another influence that De Palma himself mentioned is uh, Orson Welles's Touch of Evil for that. Specific yeah, that's what, I'm, scene. that's what I meant to say. Touch of Evil. That is a Touch of Evil homage. Oh, I didn't know. That, I thought you were just talking about another movie I never heard of. I always no Touch of Evil. I always do that. It is a hundred percent Touch of Evil. Yeah, hundred percent. So one of the best lines from this is from Swan's character. And it says so much about what this movie is about. And it's like an assassination live on television, coast to coast. That's entertainment. (laughs) It's just like there's uh, no soul. I'm going to put heaviness on that. There's no soul to that statement. And there's no humanity to that statement. But it's um, it's, it's more... but it's not about money either, you know. If 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 this movie would have been made in the mid '90s, Swan would have been a TV producer. Oh my God, like, yes. Or it would even have been in the character. early 2000s when the reality television really started becoming very popular. Yeah, he would have been a Survivor producer in the 2000s, <laughs> and in the '90s, he would have been the producer of hard of hard copy or some exploitation. Or TV could show. he be Michael Bay? But <laughs> so or Oliver Stone, you know, who knows? Uh, in in his more like uh, exploitative streak, I um, yeah, this movie is so weird. It's uh, you know, we talk about the re- the box office reception, and like I said, it didn't do you. It it did it didn't make a big splash. It's one of those films that I imagine, like I said, it probably didn't lose a ton of money, but it didn't set the world on fire. It was a disappointment. Critically and audience-wise, it just did not do well at the time. Yeah, and it was an interesting, like, they were the pressman, the producer, was very upset with the ad campaign. And in 1975, he got to re-release it with another campaign, and it did, and it did better business. Oh, I didn't so, know that. That's very cool. Yeah. Because the most, so that, most advertisement I know them getting is that uh, Paul Williams humbled <laughs> himself and went on the Brady Bunch variety show and he sang uh, yes. the song from this, uh, The Hell of It, which is actually a delete, which is a song that you don't hear until the end because it was originally going to be uh, 
a scene that was a funeral for one of the other characters that ended up not happening, but you wouldn't notice. Yeah, but some of the reviews for this movie are hilarious. Uh, Vincent Canby from the New York Times starts with a sentence you would never hear after this movie. Mr. De Palma is a very funny man. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but he calls the film, he says, uh, Phantom of the Paradise is an elaborate disaster full of the kind of facetious humor you might find on bumper stickers and cocktail coasters. <laughs> Did not like it. He said almost any uh, American international picture or beach picture or Vincent Price horror film would be funnier. Oh, it's like he's saying something. Uh, no one can ever say anything even slightly bad about Vincent Price. No, I My think favorite. what he's saying is the movie's know, trying to just, do I'm the just... horror comedy, yeah. and it's failing in mm. his mind. Uh, another great review: the Los Angeles Free Press said uh, the movie had its fundamental problem is tone. Uh, it says since De Palma is dealing with the recording industry. How do you satirize something that isn't already itself a parody? But the guy, the, the writer of this, who I couldn't get the name of, also says, in fairness, I should mention that some friends who work in the music industry have been back to see the film four or five times. <laughs> <laughs> they insist it gets better and better. So I imagine this movie hit a chord with anybody who's been fucked over by the recording industry. Or creatively you know, it, in general, working with producers and having your yeah. artistic vision, yeah. you know, gut, gutted basically and turn yeah. into something one, that doesn't even resemble what you originally wrote. Yeah. One person who did not see that was Rex Reed, who, whoa, pay a visit to De Palma's new film and you'll want to throw up. <laughs> I can't think of anything in recent memory that I have hated more. I threw up because I loved it so much. <laughs> I mean, coming I from the man who was in Myra Breckenridge. So Beef's, one of the best scenes is when Beef has his big performance and he's introduced by the third iteration of the band that was the Juicy Fruits called The Undead. And the whole stage intentionally looks like a set from The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And there's even yeah, these, dope. these, yeah. these uh, candy stripers slash nurses with this crazy Caligari kiss type makeup. And then the three band members come out and they sing the song "Somebody Super Like You," and it's and, and they're decapitating uh, mannequins that are supposed to look real uh, in the, in the audience. I just show yeah, I would awesome. love that's to go to. That and is then, like the Uber Alice Cooper concert. Uber, yeah. Uber Alice Cooper. And then yeah. you see the nurses in the back, and they're, they have these large sewing needles, and it looks very similar to even though the movie happened first, but it looks similar to the tank that Rocky was made in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, like a giant really fish does. tank with things drawn on it that makes it like look like electric coils and stuff and such. 
that's yeah. where beef emerges. And then he sings one of the best songs in the movie. Um, totally. And beef. He's, he steals the show and he's such a yeah. great actor. I love him. The thing about beef. <laughs> that's a funny thing to say. The thing about beef. The thing about uh, beef. Where is the thing it? About, <laughs> the thing about beef is. So I've watched quite a few De Palma films. Uh, from up until the 90s, you know, and there's a streak of kind of icky LGBT content and in his movies. Like, there's the entirety of Dress to Kill. I mean, which, hey, I love that movie. I love Dress to Kill. It's, a, I think, a great movie, but it is... It is a morally abhorrent film that helped create a very very damaging stereotype. And this movie's not that bad, but like the very first scene, or the Paul Williams' very first scene on camera, he drops the f bomb, not the fun f bomb, the other f bomb. Yeah, the and yeah, the not good one. And it, the it not good cigarette. one. And I don't like saying that word, so I'm not going to. Uh, and no, not. then not Beef's character, like you know, they play out Little Richard. Like that's coding. Like they want him. That's the whole the whole idea that glam rockers were gay mm-hmm. was a thing at the time. And I get, I'm not offended by it. Like as a gay man, it's I an was old, interested I can, about your take on this because I was yeah. Doing, so know. I have I have kind of views on on these kind of things. So when I I like I love old movies and old movies are not good. Rep- like, in terms of LGBT representation, you're not going to get mostly good things. Usually, I can laugh at it. Like, I watched uh, a Doris Day. F- I watched a lot of Doris Day films. That's a common theme on this podcast. And, and a lot a Doris of them Day have film. Rock Hudson in them. Well, Rock Pillow Talk has a whole gay jo- has a whole gay joke scene, and it's a gay joke, and it's hilarious, and it's not hateful, which is an uh, touch of mink. One character is mistaken as gay, and it's hilarious, but it's not hateful. The way they treat beef as a punchline annoys me, mm. and I like a part of me loves the camp of it. It's very campy character. I can be very camp at times. If you if you you get me at a Madonna concert or give me some put me some, put some share on girl, you don't know. But like <laughs> it it it. It's just it's a bummer because it just it it's a uh, it's something that just kind of takes me out for a few minutes. Like no, when Paul Williams' character I, I've says, "I've never heard a gay man's perspective on it." Because I'm a and I'm not speaking for all gay men. I'm speaking oh, for me. Well, and you know like I meant. would still recommend the film for anyone, even if they're upset by stuff like that. But like I have as a of someone in my family is LGBT and likes old movies and it's a younger person in my family and for them I would probably have to warn them because they they are very they are at a very sensitive age for this thing mm-hmm. and it would annoy them so like it's not the end of the world it's not the worst thing in a movie that's definitely in movies I want to talk about on this podcast it does not make the top 20 but and when Paul Williams says the f word he's the bad guy so yeah that makes sense I'm not it's a. I don't like hearing it, but if someone's going to say it, I want it to be him. He's the. He's the prick. Uh-huh. It makes me hate him more. Missing accomplished, but beef just being this tragic gay, uh, figure whose gay aspects are played for comic relief. I feel like five years, even like 
a few years later, that would be even a little out of touch. Like, it's skirting the line where you can make those jokes. And it's just, it takes me out of the movie just a little bit. That's all. He's they great. Wanted, the they the actor is great. They wanted a, and, and Garrett Graham has mentioned that, you know, uh, I guess something that didn't make it better in the long run, but kind of when they said Little Richard, you know, do it Little Richard as opposed to when they were saying flamboyant, which obviously is yeah. code for homosexual uh, at the time. Uh, he felt a little bit better about it, um, big, but because uh, the character is a a diva, which you don't have to oh, be yeah. a homosexual to be a male diva. But they've made the way. But it helps. But it, it can, it can. But they obviously wanted him to be gay without saying he was gay, uh, and it, so that way you get away with making jokes about him being a homosexual without. You know, well, you don't get away with it, but they think they get away with it. With that, but it's um, you know, uh, and it it's a great character, but you know, uh, it it does have that unfortunate taste to it. Yeah, and that's that's something you're gonna get with old movies. So you just kind of sometimes gotta take it or leave it. But it's not a big deal. But anyway, it, uh, we it, should. Wrap it up isn't. For- it isn't. I mean, because yeah. it's not because his his character is mostly. He's a character that, um, you know, gayness, you know, sexuality aside, because, um, you know, he has no love interest or anything. Of oh, no, sort. no. So that's, it, his character is supposed to be representative of uh, somebody that, you know, he's somebody that's made to be a product in, totally. you know, in Swan's world. So, you know, him to fit whatever slot he needs to fit into. That's not a sexual pun. Um, <laughs> it isn't. It just came right. out. It didn't come out that way. But um, and that he's somebody that doesn't. He's more of a hollow person. He's not like Winslow, who's more of a deep, sensitive person that uh, would be affected by the coldness of the music industry. Uh, you know, and the music industry. You would assume if Beef didn't die, they would treat him really well until he was passe, and then he would yeah. probably live a very you know depressing life after that um well the, the music industry of the 70s is full of uh glass closet gays who everyone knows is gay but they can't say it the second they say they're gay they're someone like joe bryath joe bryath was a, a glam icon who was openly gay and korea tanked because he was openly gay you know mm-hmm. so that's an issue with with uh the seven that 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 type of person in the 70s they will humor them but when you go to the grammys bring a girl yeah, that's sad. Yeah, it is. Feel good. But in the less sad, let's let's let's. We gotta, I got to wrap up pretty soon. Uh, you know, we talked about. Are there any other movies like this? No, <laughs> I mean the closest thing you can come to, as I said in the beginning, is Rocky Horror Picture Show or Shock totally. Treatment. But they they both are so much their own thing they're yeah. they're they're very different from each other and very special and unique um when you watch phantom of the paradise it feels different than when you watch watch rocky horror even though you can mm-hmm. c- compare the two um it's really very much its own thing and it, it's either i mean there's a lot of people i know that feel neutral like oh, it was a good movie it was interesting yeah, very different. yeah my friends are like that but then yeah. like i've i've known 
folks that have hated it and then people that love it. And there's a lot of very cool people that love it. Um, I'm yeah. not one of them. I'm just a person that loves it. Uh-huh. I'm not one of the cool ones. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I absolutely adore this film. And I, you know, the more times I see it, the more I love it. If you haven't seen it, you know, a little patience for that third act and, you know, uh, a, a little <laughs> warning about uh, Garrett Graham's character, you know, but if, <laughs> yeah, but his acting, um, if, if another, so, you know, he's like, he's such a good actor that he doesn't make it okay, but you know, he, he, he you, you can it get past it, it a little yeah. bit more than if it was somebody that sucked. <laughs> yeah. He, and I think, you know, some parts of the film have aged very well. The the people know more about the music industry now than they did in the 1970s. And so, like, you, people compare Swan to Phil Spector. You know, I think you could also compare Swan to uh, Taylor Swift's producer who screwed her over. You know, or the or Kesha, the person involved with Kesha. Th- those are even worse characters, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, then Taylor Swift's producer guy, he's just a prick. But I, the, the one film this reminds me of is a movie that will be discussed on this podcast on a later date called The Apple. Oh my God, The Apple. That's such a, that is a, I don't mean you're going to discuss it and I can't wait to hear you discuss that film um, because that is one of the best good, bad movies I've ever seen. <laughs> that movie is a whole other podcast, but it does it, it is one of the it touches on very similar themes to this film: music corrupting, um, evil producers, and the uh, whole story about Canon Films and those two bro- were they brothers? Oh my god! There's so that's a whole other podcast. I'm yeah, that's sorry, a whole other podcast. I, 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 you no, it's okay. It. So that's that what could I be look a t- forward to. I get excited by the mention of oh. Apple. Oh my god! And I but. I would not, if you're the type of person who likes to watch bad films, yes, watch The Apple. If you want to watch a good movie, don't watch The Apple. If you want to watch a movie that has good music, don't watch The Apple. Because, um, like, The Apple, the story to The Apple and the story to this, like, parts of it are very similar. The music in this is great. The music in The Apple is an abortion. Yeah, it is terrible. It is, it is the worst bad. music. But uh, it it's it's the whole creator uh, produce. Uh, it's the producer versus the artist. You know, the industry yeah. versus the artist story. And any any movie trying to be a commentary on the shallowness of music while also wanting to be headfirst in disco is missing the point. So yeah. <laughs> hey, and I, I like I, ABBA. I my, seen... my fiance looks like Bjorn from ABBA. Like exactly, it's very weird, and I I'm not proud of that, but it's it is what it is. But... Yeah, it. I, I I have I have seen I think every disco musical, and I think that's the worst one. So yeah, but, but it's anyway, one of wrapping my up. Ones. But I don't want to say that because I I'm a person that likes bad movies. The Phantom of the Paradise. Is a very unique movie. It's not a bad movie. You couldn't say that, depending on who you are, it could be a very good movie or an okay movie, but it's not. So it's not like The Apple in that sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. But the, it yeah, has no, similar no, no. themes, but better music because yeah. it's Paul Williams. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But anyway, uh, really quick again, Emma, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Oh, on the internets and interwebs. Um, If you look on any social media, uh, I'm always Emma of the Impact everywhere. I mean, even on on the kids' TikTok, 
which I'm not on very Good much. Branding. But a plus. A plus. Yeah. I, I've had I've been Emma of the Impact since my junior year of high school. So jealous. Uh, my junior year of high school screen name will remain unknown here for my own protection. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lost Turntable and on my website, LostTurntable.com. I also do another podcast uh, occasionally called Alexander's Ragtime Band with uh, Jeremy Paris from Retronauts and uh, another great guy, Elliot. Where we talk about progressive rock music. So Ooh, you got to link me up to that. It's a thing. So, yeah. But anyway, uh, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Cinema Oblivio. We'll be back again soon. We need a man that is simple perfection. There's nothing that's harder to find. Someone to lead us, protect us and feed us and help us to make up our minds. Sophisticated, quiet and strong and well-educated Where to go, what to do Could it be somebody super like you? You know, I, Rex Reed hated the movie. I, the, the one criticism I agree with on some of these reviews is the tone. And I... I I like its wild shifts in tone. I think it's fun, but I think, and maybe now is a point where spoiler, 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 end of the podcast spoilers. The movie kind of, I think, once you, it has Faust and Phantom of the Opera, and once they put in Dorian Gray, I feel like it's a bit much. That's how I felt when I originally watched it. I loved it. And not, you know, you shouldn't have to watch a movie a thousand times like I do. Well, not a thousand, but I've watched this movie so many times because um, I just love it so much because it's very atmospheric. And even if you don't think it's perfect, and that's usually what I warn people about is especially the third act because a lot happens in a short amount of time. Uh, and yeah. also that is the biggest uh, the biggest suspension of disbelief is when Winslow oh, yeah. revu- reviewing those tapes. Uh, so Winslow signs a contract with Swan. Uh, and that has one of, another one of my favorite lines. He's reading over the contract. That sounds extremely sketchy. And one of them <laughs> is, articles which have been excluded shall be deemed included. Which means, you know, <laughs> basically, basically we own you and everything we couldn't even think about. You know, uh, as a as an as a freelance English teacher in Japan, that sounds familiar. <laughs> oh no! Uh, <laughs> um, but so Winslow, he but he signs the contract. He's already at the the point where Winslow signs the contract. He's already become the Phantom in how he looks, uh, and he's been disfigured. I mean, he has nothing left already, and. Uh, basically, there's this great scene, one of my favorite scenes, where it's like uh, a parody or a, an invitation of the, invi- uh, the invention of auto-tune, you know, filters, dobies. <laughs> because uh, Winslow, from his disfiguration, uh, which now that we're in spoiler zone, is yeah. from being, um, he gets caught in a record press. And half his yes. face is all mangled. And he so that's where he, why he wears the helmet that you'll see in... Basically, the poster, anything looking up yeah. this movie. 
he already has all that, uh, but he can't talk and Swan helps him out with that. And also there's uh, that little fan theory about Hirsch. Is it, what's it, is it Paul Hirsch is his name? Who's the editor who also is the okay. editor for star Wars. Yeah, that's him. That's him. Yeah. And that, um, cause you know, Lucas was a pal of De Palma's and all that stuff. And it's very similar to Darth Vader. And, um, Paul Hirsch <laughs> said, Oh, you said to Lucas, Oh, you can't use that. Everyone will know where that came from. Ha ha ha. Cause they won't. Um, <laughs> no. so, you know, Whatever. so yeah. we could talk, uh, Paul Williams does this thing. That's basically a joke on auto tune. Uh, and then Winslow signs the contract in hopes that in the, in the promise that, Phoenix, the singer that he has a thing for, but also that's the voice he wants to sing his music, his art, the only thing that really matters to him. And he's got nothing else left to lose. He signs a contract in blood. And later on, things just really don't go well. Um, You know, Beef dies on stage from By the Phantom, and then Phoenix gets to sing, and her, and she's the other character that gets changed by the music industry negatively as uh, the of the two characters, because she's this sweet girl, and then after she performs in front of this large studio audience and gets the claim fame itself kind of corrupts her and she signs her own contract with swan and And that part to me that part to me also kind of irked me because it happens her her turn happens so fast well yeah she becomes addicted to drugs in like 24 hours it becomes a drug slut like in five seconds yeah which you know they go back to swan's place it's paced fast but i love this movie so much that it's like i just don't care anymore but the, the biggest problem is um you know, Winslow, uh, when, you know, then Swan and Phoenix become a thing and Winslow on, on top of the Swanage roof stabs himself, uh, to commit suicide and he doesn't die. And then all of a sudden Swan's there with an umbrella, uh, <laughs> with an umbrella cause it's raining. It's dramatic. Um, the very vertical shot. Uh, uh, it's very, it's very well done that part. Uh, and basically Swan gives away, which doesn't make sense why he'd tell him, you know, you go when I go. Because I'm under contract too. And then there's a whole scene of Swan uh, in the 50s in a bathtub thinking, I'm so young and beautiful. If I can't be young and beautiful forever, I might as well just die. And he's going to kill himself. And then the devil, in the form of his mirror (laughs) reflection, tells him, gives him the whole portrait of, well, picture. I always try and make it fancier. Uh, Portrait of Dorian Gray, you know, thing that images of you will age, and but you will not and if yeah, this and- video recording is destroyed, then you will also die. And then, so Winslow eventually sees this tape, and then immediately after he sees the tape of Swan making his devil's bargain, is seeing Phoenix become a drug addict in like five seconds, and then yes. seeing his own contract signed, and he just dest- destroys all the tapes. But then the finale is amazing. The whole wedding. Yeah, the finale is great, but like. That whole part, like this tape of like, hey, Winslow, here's how you end the movie. <laughs> but that's the and, that's the biggest flaw um, of yeah. the whole film. Everything else is great about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that. so that's why I always, when I don't want to give away the ending, I tell them, have a little patience for the third act. <laughs> it's still a good ending, but there's a lot of stuff that... And also, the first time I... I watched the ending the whole everything that happens in the in in the wedding scene between phoenix 
and uh, Swan, where he plans to assassinate Phoenix live on television, because that's how Beef died, and it was super popular. Um, uh, a lot happens very quickly. And then uh, you have a lot of questions of who died, who stabbed who. Um, yes. I mean, what did Swan die because the tapes were destroyed or was it because the mask came off and his pictures? I mean, I know the answers now, but it, it you feel conf- a little confused about the ending. I mean, the, the, the whole, the main tenor of the ending makes sense, but then the little details get confusing. But once, yeah. once you get past it, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it, I, it's not a major complaint. It's just one of those things that if you think about script writing, and forced exposition and tying up loose ends. And they probably wanted to make this movie 90 minutes so it could fit on a double feature. Uh, a big haul. It is. I mean, it made it. It's a big, it's a big stretch and it doesn't, it doesn't take me out of the movie. It's not the kind of thing that's going to, you know, make me recommend someone not watch it, but it is just everything up to that point. I feel is very well constructed. And then they're like, Oh shit, we don't have much time left. (laughs) 